Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This episode of Stock Club is brought to you by Hyundai. Restart your journey towards a greener world with Hyundai's next generation of zero emission cars. Find out more about their range of electric vehicles and the savings they can bring to your company and employees at Hyundai.ie. Hi there and welcome to the Stock Club podcast. I'm James and with me this week is my Wall Street co-founder and chief investor Emmett Savage and our head analyst Rory Caron. In this episode, we're talking about the Twitter hack and what a subscription service might look like for the company, Lemonade, the most talked about IPO of the year to date, and which is a better investment, MasterCard or Visa. So guys, we've been doing this podcast for about two and a half years now, and in that time we've got lots of great feedback and, and comments from our listeners, but last week I think we received what was undoubtedly the best review of the show we've gotten to date. Um, a person on Twitter, uh, the username YBMSCR, said, and I quote, whoever hosts the podcast has the most incredible accent. I would absolutely listen to it just for the sake of hearing him. Plenty of good substance as well. Um, I don't know. I, I don't think I don't think uh, reviews for podcasts get much better than that. Or more insincere. Who's the, <laughs> who's the host? <laughs> Who, who's the host? Are well... They... <laughs> Are we saying you're the host? Rory, I, I, it's pretty pretty clear I'm the host. I'm the, the guy who does the intro every week and the outro. Uh, I think we need more clarification on that. Get that Twitter user on. We need to find out who they're really talking about. I don't know. All I, all I want to say is that I am available to read audiobooks and, and things like that <laughs> uh, for, for a fee. Um, so you could work let, for let... Cam. You know that app Cam that lets that like reads bedtime stories to people? That could yeah. be your new, your new gig. My new nicks are on the side. Um, so, so I will let's... say my 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 partner saves up uh, our podcast to listen to on airplanes because apparently it puts it to sleep. Well, so there we go. Uh... <laughs> Wake up, Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let's move on. So I don't know if it's linked or not, but on the same day we got that stunning review. Um, loads of famous people on Twitter started asking their followers for Bitcoin. Um, and what has now transpired to be one of the worst hacks in Twitter's history, the likes of Elon Musk, Joe Biden and Bill Gates all had their accounts hacked by hackers looked for people to send them Bitcoin. Um, the cryptocurrency exchange Coinbase has said that it managed to prevent upwards of 1000 transactions going through to the hackers accounts uh, once the scam was noticed. But it's still believed that as much as $120,000 was taken by the scammers. Rory, I want to throw this over to you first. Um, though the scope of this hack was quite limited um has this really damaged twitter's uh, reputation as a social media platform well it, it, it hasn't it should because um you know what you had in this scenario was first of all we think that the hack came through an employee uh so the reports suggest that an employee who had admin access to accounts was either paid off or did uh, did the hack themselves uh, and Emma, strangely, I mean, you've had experience with hacks before. This was very similar to what happened to you. They got in, they got into the security feature, which allowed them to change the email linked to the account. So they were attacking the kind of two-factor authentication system, essentially. Yeah. So not not an excessively sophisticated hack. 
No, it was, and look, it's it's a, it's a sign that uh, a company's biggest weakness is typically their employees, uh, which is something that's been discussed in the cybersecurity space for quite a while. And there's a lot of companies now that are targeting that weakness in a, in a company's security infrastructure. So yeah, as you said, they they used the uh, accounts of people like Bill Gates, Kanye West, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, Elon Musk, um, Jeff Bezos. They even got into Apple's company uh, account as well. And we're trying to get people to send Bitcoin. I think it, it did lead to some very funny interactions on Twitter where I think someone someone like uh, screenshotted the Jeff Bezos one and it starts with saying, I'm giving back to my community. And they were like, as soon as I saw this, I knew it was a, a scam. <laughs> <laughs> or when like uh, Elon Musk got back on and, and, and tweeted hi, someone responded, manipulate the stock market to prove it's through to you. Uh, so there was like some some very good jibes being thrown around about the whole thing. Um, what's most worrying is that the hackers in the scenario seem to have been pretty unsophisticated, as you say. Like this was with this hack, they had access to basically every Twitter account, and they decided to use that power to to perform what was a very obvious scam. I mean, it was it was noticed right away. Why would you know a very elderly Joe Biden be asking people to send him Bitcoin? And it means like we were quite lucky this time. You know, we think about the damage that could have been if they had decided to, you know, not reveal themselves in such an obvious way. Yeah. Uh, they had users to, they had access to users' private information in the DMs, which is, you know, worrying in itself. But, you know, given the current, that the current US president uses Twitter as his primary communication tool, they could have attempted to trigger a major geopolitical event that they wished to. I mean, now that, that's not Twitter's fault. It's, worrying that that's that's possible um, yeah to begin with but um yeah it, it is worrying and it's it's it shows that you know uh people are like these these accounts have grown very powerful and we need to be very aware of what's going on and and, and twitter definitely needs to sort out their their back-end infrastructure if, if a couple of rogue employees not the first time a couple of rogue employees have have done something like this so, you know, it's very, giving uh, back-end employees God mode is very convenient, being able to access the admins of users. And it definitely, as our customer service rep, Luke, will testify, it makes talking to users and dealing with uh, user complaints a lot easier when you've got kind of uh, excessive control over accounts. But when you have attacks like this happening, not a unique attack, again, happened before, you definitely need to ask some questions about what Twitter is going to do to sort this out going forward. Absolutely. Um, so staying with the theme of Twitter, a few weeks ago, there was a rumor that Twitter was hiring employees to work on subscription service codenamed Griffin. Roy, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on the notion of a subscription service in Twitter. And again, I suppose, has the, the recent attack kind of threatened this or maybe turned people away from the idea of, of paying for Twitter? Uh, on, in terms of paying for Twitter, I mean, Twitter is the most incredible tool, incredible website I've ever used in my entire life. You, you'll notice regularly there'll be some sort of interaction between politicians on Twitter and, and people will retweet it with the, with the tagline, I can't believe this website's free. Yeah. It, it really is true in a lot of ways, not only in terms of entertainment, but if you work, in, if you work as a journalist or you work in finance, the amount of information that you get on Twitter, the amount of data that's presented to you in short bursts to be able to you know, scroll through a list that you've created on Twitter and get a huge amount of daily news or to hear thoughts from thought leaders in a digestible format is incredibly, incredibly powerful. And, and I, there definitely would be, I believe, an appetite for a subscription service. Howard Lisden, who Emmett, I believe you've 
talked to a couple of times is the founder of StockTwits, a pretty vocal uh, investor in the fintech space, suggested a pretty simple subscription avenue for them, which is that you put up 30 second or one minute time delay on the feed and you charge people who want to see it in real time a monthly subscription. That makes absolute perfect sense to me. The vast majority of people don't need the information delivered to them right away. But people who work in journalism, you know, if they're covering Donald Trump for a living, or if you're making, if you're a trader who makes high frequency trades based on information you find on Twitter, that getting the information right at that second is huge. And you'd happily pay $10 a month at least to have that 30 second advantage over others. So I definitely think that this is something that Twitter has been kind of kicking around for years, never really doing anything about it in true Twitter fashion. And they should develop it quickly and start making some money because the influence as we've seen with the recent hack is growing the importance of twitter has grown and grown yeah and yet yeah. the the monetization of it has not so they need to do something different there it's a great platform they've got a great product there it's it's ubiquitous it's unique in a way and it and they should be able to make money out of it going forward absolutely and if you're quite an active twitter user would you pay for a, a subscription to a kind of enhanced twitter service I probably wouldn't, James. Um, I got all I want from Twitter in kind of uh, passive mode and I contribute to it in, in passive mode. So I don't feel inclined at this moment uh, to pay for it. I mean, as we all know, the amount of subscriptions that are stacking up in everyone's life is growing. So unless they really had something that I, I, I especially wanted, as Roy said, whether it's to see tweets sooner than everyone else. And even at that, I, I haven't felt the need to read a tweet the moment it's broadcast. So at the moment, I wouldn't I wouldn't see myself becoming a subscriber unless uh, by not doing so, my user experience uh, was diminished, you know? Cool. So let's move on to another social networking app. Um, this one, TikTok, which is undoubtedly one of the heroes of the recent lockdown. According to data from Sensitower, at the end of April, TikTok had been downloaded more than 2 billion times worldwide, which is an incredible amount of downloads, um, surely spurred by all the people staying at home learning dances and, and things like that. Um, however, the app and its parent company, ByteDance, have been running into trouble with the US government recently. As early as last week, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo hinted that it, along with other apps from China, could end up being banned in the US. Um, Rory, we talk about TikTok quite a lot on this podcast. Why exactly is the US government going after it? Yeah, so I think the first thing that's important to understand about TikTok is that it is not in the traditional sense of social network, or at least not a social network in the way we think about it. Yeah. Um, TikTok is defined by two things. One is that it's got very simple video tools that allow pretty much anyone to create engaging video content. So that's really important. You know, to, phones in general are not great at creating video content. TikTok allows users to create short form, form video very quickly while adding music and visual effects. And some of the stuff you see, like I, I don't have a TikTok account, but I've seen lots of TikToks. And some of the stuff people come out with is incredibly creative and very funny and, you know, fair dues to them for, for putting that creativity to use in a good way. The, the second thing about TikTok is that it's fueled by a very powerful algorithm, which was actually created a long time ago by TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, who had a new service in China, which uh, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Tao Chiao, I think is, is the pronunciation. And that the, the popularity of that news aggregator was that it was um, based it was that it was based on an algorithm that took user behaviors, A/B testing, and a whole lot of cross-referencing to ensure users were shown content that they wanted to see. And that algorithm is based entirely on user activity, which of course is all collected and is all connected. Now, TikTok is a Chinese company, is owned by a Chinese company at least, ByteDance, and all Chinese companies are compelled 
by the country's national intelligence laws to hand over any data that they demand. Yeah. It doesn't matter whether the data is housed in China, which you know, TikTok has said that their data isn't housed in, in China, it's housed in the US and in Singapore. It doesn't matter. If the Chinese government wants it, you hand it over and that's, that's it. And this isn't under, anything underboard. This is policy. This is public policy of the Chinese government. So when we think about like, the, the influence that the Russian hackers had in infiltrating the last US elections, this becomes quite worrisome. Because remember, this was Russia spreading influence over US-owned platforms. So what's stopping China using TikTok to influence the next election through a China-owned platform that is subject to the kind of rules that China imposes on its companies? There's basically nothing. And because TikTok is not a social network, remember, the, the content is based on an algorithm, there is absolutely no way anyone would know what information and why that information was being put in front of them. It's not linked to your friends' accounts or who you follow. It's just there because TikTok's algorithm says it should be there. Yeah. So, you know, the US government is looking at this seriously, and they probably should, because all that data is available to the Chinese government, as is the data of any other Chinese company that they wish. And that's that could be worrying something. You saw like the power that TikTok had in with the recent Donald Trump rally in Oklahoma, where I mean, we don't know what the actual impact of it was, but apparently it did have an impact on lowering the crowd numbers at his rally. Yeah, because TikTok users were going on registering for tickets and not showing up. That's a very small example of what could be done with this with this app and with the data that's behind it. And, you know, I'm kind of in odds in terms of like, I wonder is you would think the banning of TikTok might seem at first to be like a win for Facebook. Yeah. You know, so you, you could see a kind of mass migration of the biggest stars on, on TikTok going over to another platform, most likely Instagram. However, you know, I was reading something about Ben Thompson earlier from Subtechery who said that, you know, this could actually be a net negative for Facebook. If you if you look at the kind of government intervention and, and that becoming normalized, Facebook is the dominant social media platform in pretty much every country in the world, bar China. So it's, it's not inconceivable that other countries would decide that they're not comfortable having their citizens' data in the hands of Facebook, for example. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a weird area at the moment. It's very early days in, in what's going to happen. India looks like it's already, I think it already has banned TikTok. It, it almost seems like an inevitability that the US is going to crack down on it in some way. I would suspect that they are, TikTok is racing at the moment to distance themselves as much from ByteDance as possible. And we know they hired uh, Kevin Meyer recently to be the CEO. He was, he was the former, one of the former top men at Disney. And I could very much see them selling themselves to a US company or at least a non-Chinese company in order to ensure that this, this cash cow is not going to be um, turned off at any, at any point soon. Uh, so yeah, it's, 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 it's very interesting. We're going to have to see what happens. My next question was actually going to be, um, what were the company's plans to circumvent these kind of, um, rules that were coming down the line? And I had read somewhere that they were planning on selling out a majority stake to us companies to get around the rule. Yeah. I mean, that's certainly something that they're, I'm sure they're exploring. Um, there is various ways of getting around these loopholes and, you know, reestablishing yourself as a US business. And, you know, the thing about TikTok's position right now is that the US government has a huge amount of control over what happens with this business going forward. Uh, they could easily just have, make Google and Facebook remove, not only just remove the app from the app store, but actually make all the apps that have previously been downloaded not work. That's very much within the power of the US government right now. They could as well, if they wish to review the purchase of Musical.ly, which was an American company yeah. that ByteDance bought a couple of years ago and is, is essentially the foundation of TikTok. They could review that 
that acquisition and renege it and make sure and that would basically shut down the app so so they're in a precarious position at the moment and obviously the the vitriol that's going back and forth between the u.s president and his chinese counterparts isn't helping matters that's whole fueling tensions or making people very angsty and so yeah look u.s chinese relations not good at the moment the whole huawei thing is a hot potato that no one wants to get involved in either so yeah, I would be very surprised if we don't hear some big news regarding TikTok over the next couple of weeks. And I'm sure they are working 24-7 right now to figure out how they are going to avoid a big catastrophe in that company. Yeah, it's definitely one to keep an eye on anyway. So let's move from short form videos to longer form videos and Netflix earnings. So we're in the middle of a new earnings season at the moment with likes of Tesla, Coca-Cola, Microsoft all reporting this week. But as usual, Netflix beat them all to the punch and reported on their earnings last week. As a long-term shareholder in Netflix, Emmett, what did you make of their past quarter, the first one we've seen operating under complete COVID-19 restrictions? Well, it was as impressive as ever, James. And, you know, what's amazing is that Netflix today is bigger than the Walt Disney Corporation. And I actually never thought I'd see that day. Today, the pre-market open Netflix is capitalized at around $216 billion. Disney's market cap is $214 billion. So really Netflix is now, I mean, we all know about Fang or the latest one being Fat Man, but like their their Netflix forms part of the, I suppose, the dialogue and the conversation that was the stock market over the last 10 years. And uh, just just to cut across you there for a moment, Emmett, do you think that that valuation is justified? You know, when you think of Disney, they've their parks, they've their cruises, they've their box office, they've all these different arms, whereas Netflix's core offering is really their streaming platform. Does the fact that they're valued at more than Disney, does, does that make sense to you? Um. It does because its future prospects are still bright. And I actually, I'll, I'll dive into that. Yeah. It certainly strikes me. I mean, if we were to, I suppose, zone in on that specifically, I do think that Disney is undervalued at the moment. And I think that Netflix is valued based on the information in the market. And I think it has had a run like halfway through last month, around middle of July, um, uh, sorry, halfway through this two weeks ago, uh, the the share price of Netflix was around five hundred and seventy bucks a share. It's now four hundred and ninety bucks a share. So the market didn't especially love what they heard on last week's Q two conference call. And I'll I'll dive into that a little bit, and I suppose circle around back to your question, which is: Is it fair? Is it fairly valued that that Netflix is now bigger or more or less neck and neck with Disney. So what they reported in uh, last week was that they had added just over 10 million net paid members in the period. That's the period of Q2. And 12 weeks, they added 10 million new paying subscribers, uh, which was, and that number in the same period a year ago in, in 2019 was 2.7 million. So the, the coronavirus effect plus a year uh, saw that they, they quadrupled the onboarding of new paying members in the same time period. And what happened was management then in the conference call forecast um, two and a half million new members in the quarter ahead, which was less than half of the analyst forecast for the period. So the stock got sold off and more so than ever at these moments, you see that really the, the current share price for a business is a reflection of its future prospects as opposed to the past tense. It had literally just reported 10 million new paying members, 10.1 million new paying members and said, we will continue to grow and add another two and a half million. And there was a loss of excitement and some heat went out of the stock. 
which as I said caused it to drop from around 570 bucks a share to around 490 today. I mean I remember back many moons ago uh, listening into a conference call with Reed Hastings the founding CEO and actually co-CEO which we'll touch on in a moment and he said that someday Netflix could have as many as 6 million subscribers and I remember listening to that call and my mouth dropped open that he had such a vision for such an enormous amount of monthly paying subscribers and now we're hearing that those numbers are being absolutely trounced in any quarter. So um, listening to him say two and a half million new paying subscribers in the next 12 weeks and it being a disappointment for me really feels like the business has obviously come a long way as evident by it now being bigger than Disney. Like other numbers from the call which we'll just touch on for a moment because I, I don't like to I suppose unduly pay attention to any 12-week period but free cash flow was 900 million dollars in Q2 which is up from minus 600 million dollars in the same year ago period uh, and, and Hastings and his team forecast a return to negative free cash flow in 2021 as normal production spend resumes post coronavirus but did say in the next few years that Netflix will be consistently free cash flow positive in on, on a yearly basis yeah I suppose the big the big news on the call which was I guess it was the non-news news that was so obvious to me was that Ted Sarandos who is and has been uh, Hastings' right-hand man for as long as I can remember, has been promoted as co-CEO, which I thought was zero surprise. But again, it, it garnered a lot of attention in the media. Yeah. And if you watch the Oscar... And, and it was very much, it was, sorry to cut across you, but it was very much the, the headline grabber news, you know, apart from all the figures, the fact that Netflix now had a co-CEO. And I, I was trying to think... Had, had, could I remember this ever being done before? And like, what is the significance? What's the point of having a co-CEO like this? Um, it's succession planning in slow motion. It's handing the baton over to your successor without it being without it being binary. That's the way I'd read it. And if you watch the Oscars, you'll know Ted Sarandos' face from at the Netflix table. Whenever they have a nomination, it will zoom in on this guy and, and unless you know him you go who's this guy so that's that's the new ceo of, of yeah, netflix he, he gets he gets a lot of the credit along with hastings for really you know launching netflix originals and, yeah. and kind of launching them as a studio as opposed to a platform oh yeah no question about it i mean the announcement it further solidified my belief that you can tell who the next ceo of any giant company will be when you read a profile of them in fortune magazine where previously you knew little or nothing about this person it's like a, a ceo crystal ball you pick up fortune you read about tim cook's two ic or, or a second in command or you read about reed hastings second in command and how they're the secret weapon you can take as a given that this person is being primed to take over the the, the lead position in the business so um he is you're right there, James. He has been credited with original programming. Uh, I now I think his former was a chief content officer was his former title. I actually can't recall, but it was head of programming, if you like. And and um, the book stopped with Ted for all new Netflix originals, and it just made perfect sense. Like there was no surprises there. The the stock was sold off, but I mean, coming back to your original question, James, which is. Is Netflix overvalued now? Has it had its run? It's now a $216 billion juggernaut. I believe it has room to grow for sure. Because I, again, just taking that very far field approach, looking at a world in 2030, do I believe that 
Netflix is to entertainment what Coca-Cola was to um, soda in 1970? And I believe the answer is yes. Do I believe it can grow tenfold? Absolutely not. I don't believe we're looking at a two trillion dollar business. Can it double from here? Can it become a half a billion dollar business? Trillion dollar business, I mean to say, well, in the world of trillion dollar businesses of which there are several now, I do believe that Netflix can further grow because it's that we've discussed this on many times before. It's that service that you're least likely to cut because value per dollar spent or value per euro spent is really high. When you were talking about looking forward to the next quarter there, I was reminded of that um, saying our COO and co-founder JT often says, which is like a chicken looking into a welly about how <laughs> companies are trying to predict what's going to happen next quarter with the <laughs> coronavirus and all the, yeah. the subsequent lockdowns. Um, so let's let's move on then. Uh, and let's take a quick look at everything that's happening in my Wall Street at the moment. Um, so far this month, we've already published both July's Stock of the Month report and the members only Stock of the Month podcast in the My Wall Street app. Earlier this week, we also published a brand new stock pick to the My Wall Street shortlist. This is a company that I can safely say I'd never heard of before, before Rory pitched it to me. A $20 billion business that operates in the extremely sexy sounding business spend management industry. Um, Rory, this is a company you're very excited about. <laughs> Wake up, Rory. I'm excited about, I'm excited about every company that, uh, that we add to the My Wall Street platform. No, I think it like... The, this is a company that's um, a really well-managed business. It's in a quite boring space, I suppose, which is one of those Peter Lynch uh, checkpoints. So, you know, it's not going to, people aren't going to get too, well, people except me aren't going to get too excited about it, I suppose. <laughs> but, um, you know, they, they're, ticking, they're ticking an awful lot of boxes in terms of great management. They're beating companies like Oracle and SAP at their own game. They're uh, constantly in, uh, kind of noted as leaders in the space by the likes of Gartner, which is, one of those self-fulfilling prophecies, you know, once, you, once you're a leader in Gartner, all the CIOs in the world start looking at you and going, oh yeah, we'll buy that, we'll buy from those guys, why would we buy from anyone else? Um, and yeah, I think, I think um, coronavirus is going to reset a lot of people's expectations of what they need to do in terms of protecting their costs, and this is a company that's going to help them do that, so... I have a question, actually. Uh, sorry, James. I have a question, and I know we have an elevator pitch coming up, but just as a micro elevator pitch, Rory, have you ever started to research a stock that got so boring you actually decided, I just can't do this, I can't keep going on, I can't read one more word about this? Yeah, pretty much every day. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to check out our opinion on this extremely boring stock, uh, don't forget that you can sign up to my Wall Street book and get a free trial by just clicking on the link in the notes for today's show. Let's move on to Jargon Busters then. Um, Rory, I'm going to throw the first question over to you. This is one we've actually addressed before on the podcast, but it's a question we also get in quite frequently, so I think it's worth revisiting. Um, a few users have asked us what our opinion is on solar and wind energy, and specifically investing in those industries, Rory. Yes, as we said many times before, we typically don't recommend any companies in the energy sector. And... That's largely because it's one of those industries that's quite specialized, you know, to to understand how much an oil company, for example, is going to make over the next few years. You do need to have some idea of how much a barrel of oil is going to be selling for because um, you know, that, that's their product. Uh, and that means needing to have some insight into how oil is priced and what effects of regulation and geopolitical events are going to have have on that price. I mean, that's so that's the first hurdle you need to get over before you even start yeah. thinking about how the company's managed and and. and and what they're going to look like in a few years. 
when you ask about solar and wind, you know, it is different because we're talking about green energy, but there's still a lot of the same considerations. Uh, a few years ago, more out of interest than anything, I, I did an online course on how to value a solar company. And I would certainly put it down on the more extreme end in terms of complexity of a, of, of a business thesis. Um, it, it's not quite as simple as, as a company building a lot of solar panels or wind turbines and, and just printing money for the next 50 years. You know, there's, there's various production risks and leasing agreements. And yeah, I mean, look, if, if anyone wants to get more involved in it, they can contact me on Twitter. I'll, I'll point them in the direction of that course and they can see for themselves. But it's essentially, essentially you're... you're you're trying to value a company's primary product as a commodity, which the price changes, and um, and that's something that you just need to, to have a insight into before you're going to have any sort of any sort of edge on the on the professional investors. On a very loosely related subject, I was reading the prospectus of Fisker, which is an electric car company in waiting. If you like, they are uh, getting ready to produce cars a la Tesla, and their angle is that the whole roof of the car. Is a solar cell, and I presume that the the trunk or the bonnet, as we call it, or am I getting it right? But the whole roof of the car is a solar cell, and I found myself jealous of countries that actually have enough sun that could power a car. I think with wind energy is Ireland's speciality. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't get too far in one of those around Dublin at the moment. Um, Rory, I'm going to throw the next question over to you too, and this is another question that we've just had you know, kind of a glut of, of queries in about, and it's about the newly IPO'd company Lemonade. What can you tell us about Lemonade, Rory? Lemonade's, yeah, really interesting business. I mean, I haven't had a, a chance to really dig into them yet because, as you said, they just recently IPO'd. But they're, um, as far as I've read so far, they're a would-be insurance industry disruptor. Uh, and it seems to be largely based on kind of processing bots or AI, AI bots, chatbots, as you might call them which the company claims can sort out an insurance claim in under three seconds. Uh, so just by asking a couple of, of basic questions. Um, they've also got, the, they engage reinsurers to limit downside, so, uh, which is something a lot of insurance companies do, but however, they also have a, new, a, new, a unique feature, or at least unique to me, in that they give back a percentage of profits to a pre-vetted list of charities that the customer can choose from. Um, so very strange, <laughs> it's very strange, very, very interesting. Um, you don't often hear about insurance companies taking the high road and, and trying to give away some of their profits. But the company went pro, uh, public on July 2nd, priced at around $29. The stock went up 144% on its first trading day. Uh, I think it's currently kind of hovering around 176% up. And it's uh, it's frothy. It's it's trading at about forty times sales. It's got fast growing revenue. Its revenue was of one hundred and thirty eight percent last quarter. So it's in that kind of hyper growth phase. But it's working off a very low base. You know, I think it was a hundred million they made uh, in the previous quarter, and then twenty six million this quarter. And you're talking about a company that's being valued at the moment at four point five billion. So it's it's definitely uh, people are definitely expecting continued hyper growth, if nothing else. Um, at the moment, it only does renters and homeowners, homeowners insurance, but just last week they announced they were getting into pet insurance. And look, there's plenty of more vectors they could jump into. You know, insurance is a very wide net with plenty and plenty of, 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 uh, of different types of policies that you can, you can offer the customers. And it's, it's one of those things we've probably talked about a few times, which is they're really targeting this Uberized consumer who wants to be able to deal with things like insurance, kind of boring things like insurance in a very efficient app form, uh, not have to deal with filling out long-winded paperwork, getting things done 
as fast as possible from the comfort of their smartphone. And they're tackling a $5 trillion global market. So there's lots of interesting things going on with them. Uh, Scott Galloway, who's I'm a big fan of, is a big uh, proponent of them. He says, it's, I think it's his, own, his second investment he's made in the last 10 years or something. Wow. And um, yeah, it's, I'm gonna, we're going to keep an eye on it. You know, we have a kind of self-imposed policy where we don't add stocks until they've had two quarters of um, financials posted as a public company. Uh, and we'll, we'll try and stick to that and kind of monitor them over the next two months and see how things go. It's definitely interesting. They're definitely doing something different. Am I right in saying they're soft bank backed? They are soft bank banks. Disclaimer. Is that, is that an disclaimer. alarm bell for you? <laughs> <laughs> well, like so many companies are soft bank backed. Is like, you know, they're so you can't totally uh, write off a company at least because SoftBank is involved in them. But yeah, big disclaimer there, of course. So the last question then, Emmett, I'm going to throw over to you. And this is a question about a stock in the My Wall Street shortlist already. So we picked MasterCard back in September 2015. And since then, it's returned a very respectable 240%. Uh, however, some people have asked why we chose MasterCard over its biggest industry rival, Visa. Yeah, okay, so... I guess I'm going to start by telling you why they're so similar and then I'll kind of zoom in on the difference. So here's an interesting fact. Neither Visa nor MasterCard issue any cards. Now, this was interesting to me. And all the plastic in the world is issued through some kind of co-branded relationship, uh, which is generally your local bank or credit union or a trusted business like Amazon for example, who have a platinum MasterCard, or at least they do in the UK. So uh, Visa and MasterCard are the two largest payment processing networks in the world. The whole card payment industry is actually a very complex one. And like when you go in to a coffee shop and tap your card to buy an Americano, backstage there's a lot of wheels uh, whirring. Like they, there's merchants and merchant acquiring banks and issuer banks and network processing and layers of players and software that is quite confusing if you're a non-industry specialist. So MasterCard and Visa are network processors. And uh, they therefore, because of the role they play in the ecosystem, can structure their fees any way they like. And that's largely how they try to differ. So according, or according to our friends over at Investopedia, who gave me this piece of information, last calendar year, Visa generated $23 billion in total revenue with payment volume of $8.8 trillion. MasterCard did $16.9 billion revenue off a payment volume of $6.5 trillion. So to save everyone the mental arithmetic, I, I got out the calculator. And what that implies is that Visa made 0.26% of revenue off its, off its total dollars passed through its system. And MasterCard, wait for it, did the exact same, 0.26%. So it's a volume game. And from what I can see, you know, you describe it as an apparent duopoly of sorts. Now, the reason we went for MasterCard over Visa way back when, and Rory and I had a, a long debate about this, was that at that time, MasterCard had an outward appetite for innovation. And they, they made it clear that innovation in the payment space was let's call it more so their thing than Visa, or at least they spoke about it more. And as we look in the rear view mirror uh, and figure how did that pick go in comparison to Visa, which was the obvious other one. Uh, in virtually every time frame, 
over the last five plus years, MasterCard has outperformed Visa. Um, specifically five years to the day, uh, MasterCard is up 221% and Visa is up 165%. So, um, so MasterCard has in fact executed its entire business model more efficiently, or at least it has been perceived as more efficient and, and been rewarded as a stock for that reason. So there, there's very little in it. And if somebody was truly uh, interested in network processing as an investment, you know, the safe bet is going with MasterCard and Visa. But even looking at where they are today and some of the initiatives they're working on, smart cities and the likes, I still think they have a slight edge over Visa. But, you know, it is a very difficult um duopoly if, if i may call them that to differentiate one from the other yeah absolutely thanks for that um so let's move on to the elevator pitch to finish out this week's episode so for this elevator pitch i want to know which company you guys are most excited to see their earning report over the next few weeks so as i mentioned already the last quarter will be the first one where the full effects of the coronavirus and its lockdowns will have been felt by these companies so which companies books are you most excited in seeing um rory i'll come to you first oh there's so many isn't there like i mean <laughs> like we talk about the the work from home play there's you know you look at slack zoom DocuSign, all you know companies that are really interested to see what what's going on with them and, and and if they've seen a big uptick as there's a continued lockdown or at least a continued work from home effort by the big tech companies but the one i'm definitely looking forward to the most is peloton i really want to see what's going on with them and see how uh, how this has impacted them because at the end of the last report which was which was very good they, they posted great re uh, results the the worry was that things were opening up and that uh wouldn't last very long and now it seems like we're right back even you know taking four steps back so i'd, I'd like to see what there what's happening with them and what the company's uh anticipating going forward rory i think you just want to mention peloton in every single podcast episode we have <laughs> I think it's a very it's a very interesting business i think um it's, it's going to be one of those ones that could really shock us over the years to the point where we'll look back on it now and think god imagine being able to buy it at those levels yeah no absolutely in fairness from when i first heard about it until now you've definitely changed my opinion somewhat and i'm still not totally convinced but you've definitely moved me along um emmett what company's earnings report are you most looking forward to reading well as always said there's a lot to pick from and in fact did you know that next thursday july 30 is peak earnings day with 339 companies walking up to the microphone next Thursday. So that's going to be interesting. But the one I'm going to... That's, that's why I booked annual leave that day. <laughs> well, um, so the one I'm going to go with is reporting next Tuesday, uh, July 28. And it's actually the absolute opposite end of the scale of Peloton, which I am very interested to listen in on. And it's IMAX, because as much as Peloton has benefited undoubtedly from the stay-at-home uh, world that we're in at the moment, IMAX has suffered. And it's the one cinema group that I uh, have a watchful eye on in the hope that when a vaccine emerges, uh, hopefully it does emerge, that it's the one I think most positioned to benefit from people going back to their normal lives. The things I'll be looking for is their cash position, uh, how are they doing when new theatre opens and what's slated and how they're dealing with the coronavirus. I'm just kind of interested in it. By no means am I suggesting I'm going to run out and buy it, but I think... Uh, I might yet do so, you know, if we get to a place where it looks like it's uh, very well positioned to benefit from our, our potential return to normality. Cool. That's an interesting one. 
Um, so that's it from this week's Stock Club. No laughing fits at the end of this week. Don't forget about all the great new stuff in the My Wall Street app at the moment. If there's anything you want us to discuss or explain on the next episode of Stock Club, please make sure to get in touch with us. You can find us on Twitter in the usual place at My Wall Street HQ, or you can shoot us an email at pod at mywallstreet.com. That's P-O-D at mywallstreet.com. Don't forget to subscribe to Stock Club. And if you're enjoying it, please leave a review for us on whatever podcasting platform you listen to us on. That's it from us here today. We'll talk to you in two weeks. Happy investing. This episode of Stock Club is brought to you by Hyundai. Restart your journey towards a greener world with Hyundai's next generation of zero emission cars. Find out more about their range of electric vehicles and the savings they can bring to your company and employees at Hyundai.ie. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.